Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2011 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, presented by President Richard C. Levin and Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, feature two lectures by novelist and philosopher Rebecca Newberger Goldstein. In both lectures, Ms. Goldstein speaks on the ancient quarrel, philosophy, and literature. The focus of this first lecture is the relationship between literature and moral reasoning. Why did he have to do it? Why did he feel he had to go to such lengths as to banish the poets from his city of reason? Listen, who says he even did do it? Do you think he really meant it when he has Socrates declaring that should any dramatic poet happen to show up one fine day in Utopia, the first thing that he, in the role of philosopher king, would do would be to slather the poet with blandishments, praising him as, quote, holy, wondrous, and delightful. And then the next thing he would do would be to hustle that poet as quickly as possible to the nearest border and give him the boot explaining to the poor artiste, head still dripping with the myrrh with which his exiler had anointed him, that, quote, there is no man of your kind among us in our city, nor is it lawful for such a man to arise among us. Come on, Plato's obviously having fun with us here. The Socrates he has banishing literary creativity just happens to be largely Plato's own literary creation. Plato couldn't possibly have intended that mock exile to be taken seriously. Oh, but I think he did. I think he was entirely serious. Do you now? Despite the fact that you've been warned not to take him always at his word, the man had a lot of playful mischief in him. He wasn't a professor, you know. He wasn't an academic philosopher with a PhD from Yale, Princeton, or Harvard. We obscure the nature of his thinking when we project anachronistic images of professorial decorum onto him, straightjacketing him into hobgobliny consistency and grand systematizing. Yes, he was a serious thinker. Who more so? But his philosophical seriousness lived in gleeful symbiosis with a well-developed sense of fun, an exuberant playfulness towards those familiars of his, ideas, catching at their consequences just for the sheer loveliness of the logical exercise. He doesn't always mean to be asserting the conclusions of his arguments, not even when it's his very own Socrates that he has drawing them. That's one of the reasons he uses the dialogue form, to emphasize the tentative nature of his reasoning, the multiplicity of opposing voices meant to reproduce the interplay of many possible viewpoints, all being given their due, whether the opposing views come from the multitudes in the agora or the multitudes inside one's own head. Well, yes. There's some element of truth to that, especially the point about those attitudinal multitudes clamoring inside one's own head, the subcranial cacophony that goes by the name of thinking. But still, this platonic dialogue, the one in which he banishes the poets, the republic, it's one of the least tentative of his dialogues. 
By the time he really gets into it, the other participants in his so-called dialogue are reduced to their simpering, formulaic, yes, Socrates, but of course, Socrates. Wouldn't have it any other way, Socrates. <laughs> Plato's in full asserting mode, and one of the things he asserts is that no poet, especially no good poet, be allowed to reside inside his city of reason. One half of you is re ready to impose any interpretation other than the bloody obvious one, which is that Plato didn't treat the narrative arts with undue respect. He didn't exalt literature. But he did exalt it. Even in that blasted passage you can't stop harping on, he calls the poet holy. Yes, he does. And he means that holy just as seriously as he does the banishment. That's what's so disturbing. Plato isn't one of those philosophers who's insensible to deep aesthetic stirrings. There are philosophers who are like that, but Plato wasn't one. Well, of course he wasn't. How could he have been? When he himself was the greatest literary artist in the whole wide Western philosophical canon, the metaphors, the wordplays, the allegories, the settings, and the characters, those moments of drama and heart-rending beauty. Just to take one example, that moment when Alcibiades, that darling, dangerous boy, crashes the abstemious party of the symposium where Socrates and other worthies have been discussing the nature of Eris. Socrates just finishing up an inspired speech explaining how our erotic desires must undergo a reason-directed education, yearning for a particular beautiful boy, leading us to yearning for beauty itself. And now, here comes Alcibiades, flush with drink, and so adorable subverting everything that Socrates has just said, describing what it's like to love this particular man, not beauty itself, but this maddening, reason-besotted Socrates, who refuses to be seduced even by the likes of Alcibiades. This isn't just philosophy. This is art, ambiguity and all. And Plato is a consummate artist, he knows the power of the literary arts intimately, so don't go telling me that he had no use for it. That's rather the point, though, isn't it? It's because he knows and loves the art so well, particularly poetry, because he feels its power so intimately, his soul so receptive to its rhythmic pounding that he casts it out of the city of reason. He feels very bad about having to do so, and he hopes, rather despairingly, that poetry can muster up a respectable philosophical comeback against him and convince him that it shouldn't be banished. Quote, nonetheless, if poetry has any argument to bring forward that proves it ought to have a place in a well-governed city, we, at least, would be glad to admit it for we are ourselves very susceptible to its charms. He lavishes his dialogues with artistry, sure, but that doesn't mean that what he's producing is art rather than philosophy. Beauty is a cognitive essential for Plato, 
Without beauty to startle us into attention, we'd never learn a thing. Beauty is what seduces us, and seduction is what Plato is after. He's out to seduce us into reason. So of course he'll help himself to artistic techniques for the purpose of philosophy, use what art has taught him about the imagination and about beauty's power of bewitching us into feeling what it would have us feel. So then, artistic philosophy is okay with Plato, is what you're saying, but philosophical art isn't. Is that it? Yes, yes, exactly. Artistic philosophy, yes. Philosophical art, no. But then what's really the difference when you get down to it between artistic philosophy and philosophical art? This is getting murky, Rebecca. Artistic philosophy, being artistic, enlists the imagination, allows for the ambiguity of metaphor and allegory, shapes all with an eye toward beauty in order to stir the emotions, even creates characters and enfolds philosophical positions into them. Yes, there are arguments running throughout it, but aren't there arguments embedded within philosophical art as well? In the limiting cases, when the philosopher has superior literary talents, as Plato or Nietzsche or Wittgenstein did, or alternatively, when the writer has superior philosophical talents, as say George Eliot or Herman Melville or Samuel Beckett did, don't they merge? And if, in the final analysis, we can't tell the difference between the two, artistic philosophy and philosophical art, then isn't it about time you quit this lifelong agony of a dialogue and instead consider that what Plato might just be telling us is that the literary arts must be, just like philosophy, truth-telling, cognitively and morally expansive, its art is mindless entertainment, the razzle-dazzle being projected onto the back wall of the cave that keeps us illusion-addled and slack-jawed with distraction. That's what Plato is denouncing. It's that kind of art he's banishing from his justice-seeking city of reason, not writers with social consciences telling us tales of pity and terror that wake us up out of our oblivion so that we can see the full possibility of our lives and the, all of the obligations that they carry. You are so wrong. I wish you were right, but you're wrong. What Plato had in mind was precisely the timeless masterpieces of which there just happened to be rather a lot on display in the Athens of his day. It's those glorious poets that he's running out of reason town. It reminds me of that tragic quip by Osip Mandelstam. Only in Russia is poetry respected. It gets people killed. Plato, too, respected poetry. Are you suggesting that Plato was a Stalinist? <laughs> ah, if only. If only it were a matter of Stalinism, then I could dismiss Plato's misgivings about art instead of, as it is, having them play out in this endless back and forth into which I have, with no preamble at all, injected all of you 
for which I apologize, dragging you into this internalized Greek chorus that revolves around the problem of whether novels, the art form that I love, being very susceptible to its charms, can be philosophically justified. This may seem like a quixotic problem to you. Who cares if novels can or can't be philosophically justified? Novels aren't petitioning any philosopher for permission to exist. But I assure you that this question, this very platonic question, has plagued me continuously ever since I first found myself, much to my surprise and to the detriment of my then nascent career in philosophy, writing novels. A very young woman in philosophy of science, what better way to convince skeptical colleagues that you're truly serious than to go write a novel? <laughs> Plato, in ancient Athens, referred to the ancient quarrel between literature and philosophy. And it's a measure of how prickly the relationship still is that the few professionally trained philosophers who do have serious literary habits, such as the late Iris Murdoch, have more often than not vehemently denied any particular overlap between the two pursuits. James Ryerson wrote about this phenomenon in the New York Times Book Review just this past January. Here's how he opened his essay. Can a novelist write philosophically? Even those novelists most commonly deemed philosophical have sometimes answered with an emphatic no. Ryerson then goes on to quote Murdoch, Averin, in a BBC interview of 1978 that any occurrence of philosophical ideas in her novels is nothing more than an accident of what she just happens to know. If I knew about sailing ships, she said, I would put in sailing ships. And in a way, as a novelist, I would rather know about sailing ships than about <laughs> philosophy. As much as I revere Murdoch, I've always found this disclaimer to ring false. How could a moral and metaphysical thinker like Murdoch keep her perspective from seeping into her novels? One would have to take art much less seriously than Plato does to get away with that. And of course, anyone who has studied Murdoch knows that she doesn't, doesn't take art less seriously than Plato, and doesn't manage to keep her moral and metaphysical sensibility from seeping everywhere into her art, into her themes, and thick into her characters. Her character's inner lives, and what else is a character but an inner life, are engorged by their author's philosophical knowledge. She injects it into the marrow of their being. It's not like adding in one's knowledge of shipbuilding at all. So why would she say that? Why pretend that one's philosophical self, answering no doubt to the proper name of reine Vernunft, pure reason, isn't involved in the murk of art? Why pretend that Reina Vernunft stands off to the side, holding her nose and patiently waiting it out, while one's literary self goes off on a bender? Why? I think I know why. It's to try and dodge the opprobrium hurled at us by the likes of Plato. 
the opprobrium of the philosophical profession in general, with which we, being philosophers, can't help but sympathize. No wonder that any philosophically trained and therefore self-agonizing novelist is apt to say that her literary work has nothing to do, not really, with the real doing of philosophy. After all, we have a field that is expressly designed to think about philosophical problems. It is called philosophy. The man who invented this subject as we know it was Plato. It was Plato who recognized the distinctive quality of a peculiarly slippery sort of question. He started out by thinking of this sort of question as it applied specifically to principles of conduct, to morality, but he soon saw how this sort of question emerged in far-flung regions of human thought and concern, and he saw, too, that one of the defining aspects of this sort of question, the philosophical question, is that it seems to elude in the most maddening way empirical resolution. That's part of what makes the philosophical so distinctively slippery. These questions present as empirically problematic, meaning that answering them doesn't seem to rest on our laying our hands on any missing empirical facts of the matter. We appear to have all the facts that we're going to get, and yet these problems persist. They're what one might call factually insomniac. We can't put them to bed with any available facts. Instead, what seems to be demanded is a way of casting the facts already at hand into a different arrangement. But how to do this? What techniques can be devised that will allow us to lift ourselves out of our typical ways of seeing the facts and deliver us into a new perspective on them? Because that's what any kind of progress in answering these factually insomniac questions seems to require if progress at all can be made. And here's another aspect of these questions that makes them slippery. They are slick with emotions. They tend to put us in the way of wishful thinking of a markedly self-interested sort. Who I happen to be can play a significant role in what I'd like the answers to turn out to be. It's not any old factually insomniac questions that earn the obsessive attention of philosophy, but rather questions probing the self-standing in the world, how it stands in relation to everything that isn't the self, which covers rather a wide swath. They're questions that have to do with our trying to get, in the most fundamental sense, our general bearings, they're self-situating. Such questions matter to us profoundly in the same way that those very selves matter to us profoundly. And so we're likely to come at these questions at a slant. Perhaps this slant is most obvious when it comes to philosophical questions regarding morality, the place where Plato presumably began. One would like every last one of us for it to be the case that the answers to universal moral questions turn out to be distinctly favorable to oneself, offering sound justification for the importance of one's getting exactly what one wants. 
But there are other questions, even those of a more metaphysical sort, that is asking basic questions about what it is that exists, the ontological furniture of the, of the world, that bear the dual characteristics of being factually insomniac and self-interestedly tilted. Think, for example, of that old philosophical chestnut concerning freedom of the will. How potentially mortifying to have to come to terms with our never acting at all, only being acted upon. Or equally old and chestnutty, the question of the self's relationship to, as Yeats put it, a dying animal, consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is and gather me into the artifice of eternity. The artifice of eternity. There's another one of those emotion-slicked metaphysical questions. The nature of time, the ticking away of it, entrapping those dying animals to which we are fastened. Is it possible to escape it, that ticking? We'd like to figure that one out. We'd like to figure out all of these self-situating and factually insomnia questions. But how to do it? What are the techniques that will allow us <clears throat> to see the facts that we have at hand in a new arrangement, given that these techniques will also have to correct for this self-interested tilt that would, if left to its own, encase each person in a private vision made up of the stuff of wishful fantasizing, for which there is no better image than the one Plato gave us in the allegory of the cave. Each prisoner chained to his own personal shadow world, which, being generated by his own situation in relation to the shadow-casting fire, will be an irreducibly personal vision, one which will try to do justice to the unique position he holds in his own private reality and will try to fortify him against the terror or what, of what lies beyond his control, another word for which is reality. And so it is that each prisoner will have a distinctly different point of view, a different narrative to tell, in which he himself is the center of narrative gravity. In other words, when it comes to these slippery questions, the philosophical, truth is a hard thing to come by. But it is the truth, after all, that the self desperately wants, its very desperation exacerbating the situation that makes truth so hard to come by. This was the obstacle that Plato saw he was up against, or rather not him, per se, but philosophy, which was to be nothing else than this list lifting of ourselves up out of our typical wishful thinking in regard to questions both factually insomniac and self-situating. What we must do in the face of this challenge is to formulate objective grounds for our beliefs. Meaning by objective here, it has many meanings, but the meaning here, grounds that are not intrinsically attached to any particular point of view, shaped by one's own particular situation, but are rather grounds that are in principle accessible to all reason-guided points of view. 
Philosophy's heavy methodological toolkit, its techniques of logic and conceptual analysis, its laboriously self-critical arguments and thought experiments have all been designed to meet the specifications of objectivity when moving through the tricky intellectual terrain carved out by questions that appear to have answers, and of course, this appearance is sometimes challenged, but whose apparent answers are not, unlike the scientific, empirically resolvable, not even in principle. It's an extraordinary leap to come up with this particular notion of objectivity, one which doesn't deny the reality and the force of the subjective, the thick and viscous atmosphere of our own private sense of ourselves in the world, which private sense we inhabit always, but which deems this private sense both irrelevant to and set-asideable in the business of philosophy. If there's no way to objectify your grounds, that is, to make your case compelling to others who are nothing at all like you except in their embrace of reasoned arguments, then sorry, sweetheart, but you're not really taking part in the philosophical conversation. Plato didn't dismiss the possibility that there are certain truths that can simply seize hold of a person so that he is, as it were, possessed in the grip of an extraordinary noetic experience, religious, erotic, or aesthetic. Such a one so possessed won't be able to articulate objective, rational grounds that will enable someone who isn't sharing in the possession, and of course no one else really is, to seize the same truths. And maybe those irrational truths are higher truths, Plato's not saying that they aren't. In fact, he sometimes confesses, most notably in the Phaedrus, that he thinks that they are. But they're dangerously unreliable, lacking any objective means for assessment. There's good possession coming from somewhere outside of us, dubbed by him the gods and leading to truth. And then there's bad possession, which is nothing more than the delusions of the cave having their way with us. And someone who's in the grip of possession has no means of distinguishing which is which, the good possession from the bad, and is also in such a state as to dismiss anyone who isn't similarly seized, which means anyone who isn't himself. There's a great deal of conflict over this issue within Plato. In some sense, this is the problem of the poet in a nutshell. But philosophy as a field, with a few notable exceptions, for example, as far as I can make out, Heidegger, ultimately took up one side of Plato's divided soul. Plato, philosophy countenances only the sorts of reasons that can, in principle, make a claim on everyone who signs on to the project of reason, philosophy's project. Philosophical truth is treated as an equal access good, just as it is in science. Philosophical truth, just like scientific truth, is, if accessible at all, accessible in principle to anyone who submits to its methods, leaving behind any considerations that make sense only within particular points of view, especially marked by certain features that can make no claim on those whose points of view happen to be deficient 
in those features. Certain emotions, say, or visions, special messages, or, or even cognitive, cognitive equipment installed on some exclusive high-end cognitive models. Forget all such notions of a class system of knowers. Religion, with its tradition of selective revelation, may have use for such an epistemological hierarchy, but philosophy doesn't. Philosophy, like science, is committed to epistemic democracy. The truth that is accessible to some is, in principle, accessible to all, which is why, historically, the two sorts of democracies, political and epistemic, have tended to be linked. See under the Enlightenment. No wonder that the field of philosophy as invented by Plato was, from the beginning, a curiously gregarious subject, very chatty. Dialectic, the term Plato uses for whatever philosophical technique he most favored at the moment, is pursued in conversation. Many voices, many points of view, all coming at the same arguments, analyzing them, criticizing them, reaching for the grounds that compel acceptance no matter where you are situated in the cave. <clears throat> Excuse me. Philosophy is always searching for the argument that will, as the late philosopher Bernard Williams put it, stop them in their tracks when they come to take you away. <laughs> Williams was speaking specifically of moral arguments, but his words managed to convey something essential about this field of philosophy as it was invented by Plato, about its stake in establishing the compellingly impersonal point of view concerning questions in which we all have so much personally at stake. The style of the field, striking a pose of purposeful distance, may try hard not to portray that anything particularly personal is at stake, but it is. How can it not be when it's all about our trying to get, in the largest sense possible, our bearings, figuring out where we are, the overall ontological setting of this place, and what we are, and what we're supposed to be doing with what we are, and what it is that's in store for us, ultimately. It's precisely because so much is personally at stake that philosophy imposes its rigorous standards of objectivity. And what have the literary arts to contribute to any of this? No novel or poem is written or appreciated by submitting oneself to the objectivity-seeking instruments of rigor rigorous argument and conceptual analysis. On the contrary, the literary arts are, like all the arts, in the business of moving us producing profound emotions. Aesthetic qualities are pathetic qualities. Pathetic not in the sense of pitiful, but in the sense of making us feel, pathos, designed to produce that extraordinary powerful experience which sometimes issues in ecstatic mutterings about beauty and truth, propositional precipitates that float on the surface of aesthetic experience. What is more, some of the things that we are made to feel when in the throes of aesthetic excitation have everything to do with the sorts of self-situating, factually insomniac questions for which objectivity-seeking philosophy was specifically designed, 
not only moral questions, but those which are usually classified in philosophy as metaphysical. Dealing with such questions as the nature of the self and personal identity, freedom of the will, consciousness, time. Works of the imagination can't help implicating themselves pathetically, that is, by way of emotions, in matters both moral and metaphysical, never mind those novels that go out of their way to trespass on philosophy's domain, the so-called philosophical novels. All works of imagination are philosophically irritating. They are all philosophical trespassers, inducing in their susceptible readers pathetic moralities, pathetic metaphysics. Sometimes a literary work will explicitly address itself to moral or metaphysical matters. Its characters or omniscient narrator, one of the wonderful things about being a novelist is you get to be omniscient, uh, carrying on like a regular philosopher, propounding philosophical positions and arguments. But even in the most philosophically insistent novel, which I am sometimes accused of writing, the aim is never to force a conclusion. That's what philosophy papers and books are for, but rather to force an emotionally rich and ambiguous aesthetic experience upon which floats, rather like pond scum, certain moral and metaphysical suggestions. <laughs> a work of imagination in drawing a reader into its world <clears throat> draws him into its pathetic morality, its pathetic metaphysics. To the extent that a reader lives within the imaginative work, he enters these pathetic philosophies, feels as if the world were really so. Aesthetic experiences in full operation affect that sort of perspectival fact rearrangement that philosophy proper struggles to bring about by way of argument, yielding us an altogether different sense of the world. Plato worried that when it comes to slippery philosophical questions, unless objectivity-seeking arguments were vigorously applied as a corrective, the wishful thinking of the self would always have its way, thoughts running their natural course like water down a mountainside to pool at narcissistic fantasies. But in fact, the sense that a work of imagination can induce can be quite at variance with private fantasies. That much, at least, you can say for them. They can rip us out of our habitual ways of viewing, which, of course, doesn't make those alternative viewings right. It doesn't make them justified. When a student tells me that he believes that life is totally pointless and there's no reason to do one thing rather than another, including any acts of compassion as opposed to acts of cruelty, because he has just read and loved Dostoevsky's The Underground Man, and that is how it made him feel. I have to tell you, I'm not so happy. And I quickly try to press some Chekhov on him. <laughs> Within philosophy, issues about what is the case, ontological matters, are generally said to be quite separate from issues concerning what ought to be the case. 
normative matters, and that you can't derive an ought from an is has been as close to gospel and philosophy ever since the gap between the two domains was first opened by David Hume in the 18th century. But this gap isn't much observed in the world of imaginative works, where pathetic morality and pathetic metaphysics promiscuously intermingle the sense of what the world is like cohabiting with the sense of how life ought to be lived. But I want to separate out these two sorts of issues, the normative and the ontological, as they occur in literature, saving the topic of ontology and literature's pathetic metaphysics for tomorrow. And speak now for the remainder of this time of the pathetic moralities that works of the imagination insinuate into us. T.S. Eliot wrote in an essay entitled Religion and Literature, in which he, by the way, tries to warn his Christian readers to eschew all literature that doesn't promote Christian values, quote, the author of a work of imagination is trying to affect us wholly as human beings, whether he is conscious of it or not. And we are affected by it as human beings, whether we intend to be or not. He's right. To the extent that all works of imagination do provoke what we can call normative emotions, feelings that involve, however obscurely, propositions about what ought to be the case. There are two quite different sorts of normative emotions provoked by imaginative works, operating at two quite distinct levels and differing, I think, in their staying powers. The first sort I think of as, to quote one of our recent presidents, that vision thing. And it was primarily these visionary sorts of normative emotions to which T.S. Eliot was referring. This is how life ought to be lived, will feel, when in the grip of some novelist, novelist vision of life, or at least our interpretation of his vision of life, because a work of art always has to be sufficiently porous as to allow us in to create our own experience out of it, which means it must push us to feel without completely determining what it is that we feel. But push us they will, a Tolstoy or Dickens or Hardy or Jane Austen or Proust or Henry James or George Eliot or Dostoevsky or Chekhov or Melville or Goethe or Philip Roth or Ian McEwan or Michael Cunningham. And we'll find ourselves feeling that life should be lived in efforts towards spiritual purification, say, or in large and heroic adventures that test the limits of one's endurance, or in resisting conventionality and living with the originality of a work of art, or in tending one's own small domestic sphere, or in blissful communion with the sublime and the beautiful in nature, or in the blissful communion of Eros, whether concentrated on one chosen individual or spread out among the varied many, or in thrall to one's own artistic capabilities, or in cultivating one's social refinement, or in throwing off the stifling effects of civilization and returning to the raw authenticity of the state of nature, or in only connecting, or in ministering to the suffering of the world. And I can go on, and I can also confess that I've been made to feel all 
all of these irreconcilable visionary normative emotions, as I'm sure all of you who love works of the imagination have been made to feel them, since to give yourself up to a narrative work is to enter its world, including its pathetic morality. But normative emotions of this visionary sort aren't particularly sustainable, rarely lasting well beyond the aesthetic excitation of the particular imaginative work in question. And a very good thing it is, too, this unsustainability. For otherwise, people like me, so susceptible to the charms of the novel, would be driven from one sense of how life is to be lived to another, with each novel another pathetic morality exchanged at such a rate as to induce moral whiplash. But there are other means that literature has for insinuating normative emotions in us quieter, less visionary, but ultimately producing normative emotions more sustainable and transportable from inside the aesthetic experience to outside. These normative emotions are associated with literature's most powerful means of pathetically engaging us, character sympathy. The sympathetic character is one with whom we feel. That's, of course, the literal meaning of sympathy, feeling with. And this feeling with has a normative component. As in our own case, in which we naturally, in fact, continuously and compulsively see the story from our own point of view, and in such a way as to interpret that perspective with maximal charity, so we experience the sympathetic character in literature. This sifting of characters by way of a reaction that is at once emotive and normative is essential to the literary arts. A reader is meant to have a reaction to a work of fiction and to its characters, an emotional engagement, and a writer, no matter what else she is doing, is almost always attempting to manipulate the reactions of sympathy and antipathy, identification and aversion, approbation and disapprobation, all of which emotions I lump under character sympathy. And in doing so, she is pulling us into the novel's moral world, inducing emotions that have normative content. A novel in manipulating character sympathy can't help but be implicated in questions of morality, no matter how tightly shut Miss Raina Frenoft pinches her delicate nostrils. The techniques of character sympathy are many, not least of which is the finessing of point of view. If a novel is written in the first person or in the third person but closely tied to a particular character's point of view, there is a certain presumption that the character is sympathetic. Call it the sympathetic persuasion of the chosen point of view. And the reader is usually willing to go a long way in this persuasion and exercise maximal charity in interpreting the character. This is an interesting fact about the phenomenology of imaginative reading, and one which writers are quick to exploit, even by confounding it, playing such tricks as the presentation of an unreliable narrator, a trick which only works, and it works over and over again. We fall for it every time because of the sympathetic persuasion of the chosen point of view. 
Narrative point of view all by itself is a powerful tool for insinuating normative emotions. <clears throat> and now, as an empirical demonstration of the way in which aesthetic experience, even of a relatively shallow sort, induces normative responses, I've produced an appropriately shallow piece of fiction for you. <laughs> it features two characters, Sophia and Fiona, freshman dorm mates in some unnamed college, perhaps yours. Sophia had awoken in mid-dream, thinking of David Hume. The packet of handouts on the is-ought distinction was lying on her quilt, where it had fallen from her hand sometime around midnight. She had told herself that she was only going to close her eyes for 10 minutes or so, but she knew from the weak light of dawn seeping through the blinds of her dorm room that hours had passed, and that then the thoughts came in quick succession. It was Monday morning. Her paper, over which she had been agonizing now for weeks, never getting past the first paragraph, which she had reworked with the obsessiveness born of not knowing what her second paragraph could possibly be, <laughs> was due today. She knew what she wanted to say. Yes, somehow she knew. The fog of despair suspended over the vortex of her confusion had dissipated, and she sensed not only the second paragraph, but the third and the fourth. Yes, even the conclusion rising up in precise declarative sentences of just the sort her professor had recommended in his first handout of the semester, how to write a philosophy paper. <laughs> she glanced at the other bed just to confirm what she already knew. Fiona, her roommate, was still out celebrating the weekend, which for Fiona encroached more and more on the week as the semester progressed. Sophia reached down to where her Mac was waiting for her on the candy wrapper littered floor. She ate when she was nervous and never a thin girl. She was already well on her way to fulfilling the freshman 20. But now she felt buoyant and bounding without a glance over the crowded field of false start. She launched in with brave heart and clear head, pounding her keys in that forceful staccato that had, caught, that had caused Fiona to momentarily remove her pouting lips from her cell phone and in a voice as artificially sweetened as the Coke Zeros on which she seemed to subsist, comment that she never had heard anyone who typed quite so loudly. <laughs> Sophia was just beginning the second paragraph when she heard a faint and dismal tapping on her door. Past experience being a guide to the future, she knew that in the course of the night's partying, Fiona had misplaced her key card. Sophia got out of bed, padding to the door on her bare feet, Mac resting in the crook of her arm so as to not to lose her sentence. There stood Fiona in the skimpy dress and stiletto heels on which she had tottered out last night. Her makeup had been rearranged. Mascara was on her cheeks, lip gloss on her chin. No more likely that was cake to drool. The fumes of what she must have drunk in the past few hours seemed to be seeping out from her pores. Slut 
was a misogynist word that Sophia wouldn't allow herself even to think about another human being, especially not a roommate with whom you were supposed to feel some natural kinship. But the way Fiona carried on night after night, it was as if she were silently pantomiming that word. Fiona's blurry eye fell on the computer that Sophia was cradling, and she gave a crooked little smile. Oh, is what she said, but she might as well have said it aloud. Poor, pathetic Sophia, holed up all weekend with nothing but her stupid schoolwork. Fiona didn't even bother to look Sophia in the eye, but staggered past her and collapsed face down on the bed on top of all the clothes that she had tried on last night before finally making up her mind on the dress that now rode up over her bare ass. Apparently, it wasn't only her key card that she had misplaced last night. Staring at the inert body, Sophia allowed herself the rage she had been resisting all semester. It wasn't so much rage against Fiona as rage against the college, which had fraudulently had all incoming freshmen fill out roommate questionnaires. In good faith and on a scale of one to five, Sophia had rated herself a four in neatness, a five in studiousness, a two in extroversion, but only because she was ashamed to admit she was a one, and had described herself as a morning person who did not like to study to the sounds of loud music only to end up with the girl now passed out on the other bed. David Hume was quoted in the handout on Is Odd as having said that reason in itself is perfectly inert. But that wasn't reason lying there on the bed. (laughs) Or maybe it was, since Sophia looked down at her unfinished sentence and found that she no longer had any idea of how to complete it. I hope that you were with me here in feeling sympathy for the erstwhile Sophia taking her philosophy class so endearingly seriously. And as for Fiona, well, what can one say? For the first few moments, her eyes still closed, Fiona thought she was back in her bed at home and that the violent percussion in her head meant that she was running one of those high fevers she used to get when she was little and that when she would manage to open her eyes, oh God, not yet, her mother would be sitting there ready to lay her cool long fingers on her forehead. There was a man with his hair in flames who used to walk across her room whenever her temperature spiked, his angry eyes telling her that if she spoke a word of him, he'd set the whole room on fire, maybe the whole world. And so to save the world, and especially her mother, she had stayed silent, her whole body shaking with the fever and the fear. Fiona tried to hold on to the fever fantasy, dream-willing herself into thinking she was a sick little girl safely at home, but images were flashing in between the pounding in her head, and she knew that when she opened her eyes, she would see him, whoever the boy in those images was. It was bad, she knew, that she couldn't recall his face, this boy whose desire had picked her out from all the other girls crushed up against the bar last night, the way his eyes had stayed on her and not brushed her off and gone on to the next girl. He'd let her keep his stare on her, smiling as she went through her moves. 
That was the best moment. That was always the best moment, the thrill of being seen in that way, knowing how special you had suddenly become to some perfect stranger, almost as if they wanted to know all about you. And this always was the worst moment. He was still out cold, and she grabbed what she found of her clothes, which wasn't all of them, but her need to get out before he stirred overrode all else, even though her sweater with her key card in its pocket was lost somewhere in the twisted bedclothes. Fiona dreaded having to wake her roommate, but not as much as she dreaded having to exchange any words with whoever this boy was. Sophia opened the door, staring in that half-silvered way she had, a one-way mirror like cops used to spy on guilty people. Sophia in her unstained pajamas and unstained eyes, carrying her computer as if it were some sort of talisman to keep her safe from the contagion of Fiona. Fiona could feel the filth of herself from where Sophia was standing, her nose crinkled up as if she were smelling something bad. That's what Fiona was to her roommate, a bad smell in the room. It rose up in Fiona's own nostrils now, the smell that she was to Sophia. She tried to smile, but it didn't come off very well, Fiona's smile, and her eyes dropped again to the computer Sophia was clutching, and the rebuke couldn't have been more articulate if Sophia had put it into words or into that one word which would sum it all up, the thing that Fiona was to her roommate, which was the same thing that she was to the boy in the bedroom she just fled and to the boys in other fled bedrooms and to herself to herself right here, and in the harshness of that one-syllable summation, all that she could manage was a sad little oh. As she slunk past Sophia and collapsed face first on her bed, feigning instant oblivion, as if she had passed out cold, feeling her roommate's violated eyes fixed on her bare bottom, which was, she thought, a fitting punishment for both of them. I hope that you managed to feel, even in this small and stunted example, some small, slight changes in the motions of sympathy. These motions of sympathy involve a sense of the emerging reality of a character, and in that way they are cognitive, and they involve an emotional engagement with a character, and in that way they are pathetic, working on our emotions. But these sympathetic motions are normative as well. When we are willing to accord a character our sympathy, we take her interest to our heart, wishing her to flourish, feeling her deserving of such wishing. That these motions of sympathy have normative content is indicated by the fact that they can be blocked when a person's underlying values are ranged strongly against them so that she experiences sympathetic resistance against them to a particular fictional character, which can vitiate the aesthetic experience or at least make it quite different from any that the author had in mind. My own late mother, for example, would have registered strong sympathetic resistance toward Fiona, the sort of young woman my mother would have described as lacking all morals. In fact, as a matter of my late mother registered strong sympathetic resistance to almost all of my characters. <laughs> 
even in such cases of hardened, sympathetic resistance, it can happen that a writer manipulating aesthetic techniques at her disposal can melt the resistance down, motions of sympathy, normatively laden, breaking through. When this happens, the sorts of changes the newly sympathetic reader feels are far more apt to be sustainable than the more fleeting normative emotions of that vision thing, more apt to outlive the aesthetic excitation of the particular work that provided them, which is why it sometimes happens that particular imaginative works produce a felt moral impact, sometimes radiating out to a wide community of readers who become participants in its pathetic morality. Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin is one such often cited, extraordinary example. The sympathetic resistance overcome within the aesthetic experience of reading that book, helping to overcome a sympathetic resistance that extended far beyond the reading of that book. Motions of sympathy can entail a moral education. I wouldn't want to argue that such moral education is the purpose of works of the imagination. Some have argued for the subservience of the literary to the moral. For example, the magnificent George Eliot, which just goes to show that one can be a, a, a brilliant novelist and still hold an aesthetically utilitarian position. If art does not enlarge men's sympathies, it does nothing morally, she wrote in a letter. The only effect I ardently long to produce by my writing is that those who read them should be better able to imagine and to feel the pains and the joys of those who differ from themselves in everything but the broad fact of being struggling, erring human creatures. But personally, I wouldn't want to argue for the subsuming of the artistic under the moral. Works of a narrative art, like all works of art, provide us with powerful aesthetic experiences, pulling us out of ourselves to shiver our naked souls like nothing quite else, which is quite enough to ask of them. Still, it's a condition of narrative works working us over that they pull us into their worlds, including their pathetic moralities, and this is sometimes good for us. It's also sometimes bad for us. The subtle insinuations of char character sympathy and antipathy sometimes provoke normative emotions that frankly stink. As when stereotypes of certain groups stir up revulsion, making it all the harder to see the full humanity of members of that group. Charles Dickens defended his antipathetic character Fagin on the highest moral grounds, quote, Fagin in Oliver Twist is a Jew because it unfortunately was true of the time in which the story refers that that class of criminal almost invariably was a Jew, he wrote a gentle Gentile reader who accused him of doing enormous harm to an already despised and vulnerable group in his contemporary Britain. Quote, it appeared to me that to draw a knot of such associates in crime as really did exist, to paint them in all their deformity, in all their wretchedness, in all the squalid misery in their lives, to show them as they were, forever skulking uneasily through the dirtiest paths of life, it appeared to me that to do this would be to attempt a something that was needed and which would be a service to society and I did it as I best could. This is an aesthetic utilitarianism to compare with George Eliot's, the aesthetic in the service of the ethical. 
Dickens, a proponent of the Enlightenment who wished to use the normative emotions of fiction to reform society, always works character antipathy hard in all of her twists, focusing on to Fagin all the degradation, squalor, avarice, and exploitation of innocence, orphan children, for God's sakes, that required, he believed, radical extirpation in urban Victorian settings in order for Enlightenment ideals of reason and progress to flourish. And by using the stereotype of the Jew that had, of course, so much vitality in his day, he's able to heighten the normative emotions that he's going after. Fagin is referred to in the text always as the Jew. It's only in direct speech that he's ever given his proper name. And this character is meant in every way, including his personal hygiene, to provoke revulsion. His face is, quote, villainous looking and repulsive, obscured by a quantity of matted red hair, his fingernails long and curved and black. When Fagin is Shea Fagin, he wears a greasy flannel gown. And when he goes out, he brings his filth with him. How could he not when filth is his very element? Quote, in the cover of darkness, the Jew skulks stealthily along, creeping beneath the shelter of the walls and doorways. The hideous old man seemed like some loathsome reptile engendered in the slime and darkness through which he moved, crawling forth by night in search of some rich offal for a meal. When I said that the normative emotions stirred by imaginative work sometimes stink, I meant it. Dickens very effectively deploys the primitive disgust of bad smells, the very neighborhood of Fagin impregnated with filthy odors, calling on the repressed or perhaps not so repressed memory of the fetter Judaicus, the particular ineradicable smell of the Jew, an idea which has a long pedigree in Europe, reaching back to the Middle Ages. Dickens is a great writer, and Oliver Twist is a brilliant work, and presumably none of us in this room are going to be affected by its brilliant working of the stereotype of the Jew because we have all moved beyond a place in which we could be so affected by that particular stereotype, thanks in great part to the progress of Enlightenment ideals of rationality for which Dickens, too, was working, all of which is to say that the pathetic moralities of literature are not in themselves sufficient to do the work of moral philosophy. Normative emotions in themselves are not sufficient to do the work of moral philosophy. Normative emotions without the objectivity-seeking ministrations of moral philosophy are blind. There are the morally salubrious sympathetic expansions of an imaginative work, moving us to feel sympathetic humanity of others, such as George Eliot or Harriet Beecher Stowe had in mind. But to see that those pathetic responses are salubrious, whereas other pathetic responses provoked even sometimes by the very same imaginative works just plain stink. To see that difference, we have to move beyond pathetic responses, beyond mere normative emotions, to that place of objective reasons in which we can evaluate between them. And that place rightfully belongs to philosophy. And yet, to paraphrase that deliciously paraphrasable slogan of Kant's, if normative emotions without moral philosophy are blind, well, then moral philosophy without normative emotions is, if not exactly empty, at least rather meager. 
It's not that philosophy in the millennia since Plato hasn't made any progress in the moral sphere. It's not that its objectivity, objectively formulated arguments have revealed nothing to correct the self-interest slant which so favors oneself and one's own cave-lit ill-sightedness. Philosophy's progress in the moral sphere has been significant, slowly and arduously, through the accumulation of its arguments, convincing itself and us that the immoral stance a refusal to recognize in thought and in action the normative gravity of each human being is a species of the irrational. And yet, even with all its demonstrable success, philosophy falls short. The touch of these abstract arguments on us is ghostly faint. Even so extreme a rationalist as Spinoza wrote, a true knowledge of good and evil cannot check any emotion by virtue of being true, but only insofar as it is felt as an emotion. It's one thing to reach moral conclusion, and, and it's another thing to feel them, sufficiently so to, to act on them. Works of imagination at their ethically pathetic best make us feel not only the narrative gravity of that poignant complexity, the human being, but the normative gravity as well. That's not what makes imaginative works aesthetically valuable. Aesthetic experience is what makes them aesthetically valuable. But quite often, that aesthetic experience includes, even as an essential part of its pleasure, the sense of sympathetic expansion. So should they come to take you away, my friends, oblivious to all that you are, that makes what they are doing a monstrous crime against humanity. Never mind trying to formulate the argument that will stop them in their tracks. Adolf Eichmann could rattle off Kant's categorical imperative quite convincingly. But there are some novels that you might urgently press your oppressors to read. Thank you. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2011 as part of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as a means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. Rebecca Goldstein spoke on March 23, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.